This is the Accounting Insider Show. So this is another thing that a lot of investors are unaware of. There's got to be an easier way. It's achievable for anyone. It doesn't cost anything to set up a business. Because there are many great ideas out there, but it's the people that make ideas happen. Because once you unlock this formula, there's no reason to stop. You just get better and better at it. You just make so much money out of it. All right, sitting down today with Peter O'Leary. Um, thanks for joining us today, Peter. Pleasure. Uh, Peter, you're a CPA. I've known you for ages. You actually work in the building alongside of me. But um, today's conversation is not about you. And thanks for joining me and offering to be part of it. Well, I, I coaxed you into it, but it's a separate story. Today, we're talking about an accounting firm that existed 30 years ago, which has been like an iconic accounting firm in Adelaide. Um, I'm surprised at how much it comes up in everyday conversation. I, I feel that it's the the iconic accounting practice that existed 30 years ago that I, uh, I you know, I don't, I don't think anyone, and I don't think this is an exaggeration, I don't think anyone's really ever come close to being what that firm was. Um, it had so many aspects about it. Today we're going to try to reverse engineer it, deconstruct it, look at all the components of it, look at why was it so successful and try to learn a bit about the person who created it and the story behind it. So, Peter, we've got you in today. Thanks for joining us. Um, you're a CPA. You used to work at this firm. The name of the firm is was Eastwoods. Um, it was an accounting firm. I'll just give a bit of a background to it. Um, located in Norwood, South Australia. It was run by a guy called John Eastwood. Um he set it up <clears throat> with the idea of just servicing doctors and dentists, predominantly doctors, I think. And he took it from nothing into um, one of the most profitable, uh, I don't know the numbers behind all of this, and I'm guessing, but definitely one of the most successful, profitable, largest firms in Adelaide, and sold it to a bank. Now, that doesn't happen. Most accounting firms, when they get to a certain point, are sold to other accountants. Uh, and that, that, that's the typical sale scenario. His was so big and so good that he got approached or he approached the bank and they said that they wanted to take it over. And I think that they wanted to get their hands on all of the customers that he was consulting to on a regular basis. Now, I've, you know, I'm amazed at how often Eastwoods comes up um, now, Peter, you and I speak probably a couple of times a week, but it has it, it. The reason that I'm doing this podcast is because I'm surprised looking back on my like last week at how many times our conversation went back to the days of Eastwoods, and I know two other people um, who actually worked there at the time. And every time I go and see those two people, um, they would tell me about the good old days when they used to work there. And when I mean good old days, I just mean what the culture was like, what they used to do, um, what their job role was, whether they enjoyed it, what were the pressures, all of that sort of stuff. Now, filling in that framework, I did some research work and tracked down John Eastwood. And I think um, someone gave me the suburb that he lived in and the street that he lived in. And he actually hasn't moved in 20 years or so. So he was in the phone book and I rang him and I left a couple of messages and he didn't return my calls and that's fine. And, you know, it's probably a bit weird because 
you know, who am I ringing him? Um, he doesn't know me from a bar of soap and I've just left a message, would you mind calling me back? Anyway, I rang one day and I got his wife and she was lovely and we had a great old chat. And I knew when I spoke to her that I'd get to him. And at the end of our conversation, she said something like, oh, you seem like a lovely young man. I'll make sure John rings you. <laughs> anyway, like within 24 hours, I had his mobile number. He was ringing me and wanting to line up an appointment. And, and I'd explained to his wife that, you know, I was just interested in him, what he did as an accountant. Would he be interested in being a sort of a mentor to me? Uh, and yeah, he was, he was very cool about it. We met uh, about four years ago. And I went and saw him and we sat down and, and I was really impressed. And I got back to my office and I just made notes after notes about stuff that he told me that he used to do when he was running this business. And, and I was reading through them last night and I found them really useful. And, you know, there's, there's a number of things that we're going to talk about today that came up in that conversation that I had with him. But, the, I mean, this is a bit bizarre because why isn't he sitting where you are, Peter? But the, the, the aspect of today that I like is that we can actually um, drill down further. We can, you know, if, if he was sitting in your seat, I would be um, probably a little bit too much in awe of him and show too much respect. And I've, I've looked back at some of my podcasts in the past and it's a little bit, you know, I don't purposely try to do this, but um, it, it feels when I listen to them that I'm being um, overly nice to them and not asking the hard questions Whereas I can, I feel like I can absolutely drill you, <laughs> and I don't want you to say anything that um, you, you know, that, that's going to get him in trouble or that's going to be disrespectful to him. But I can ask you the questions that I wouldn't be able to ask him, which is better for the people listening. Anyway, let's talk about uh, some of the stuff that he used to do. Now, um, the location of his office, I probably, I think that's probably the first thing. He told me that he chose the location so that it was located between um, Flinders Hospital, the Royal Adelaide Hospital, and the Queen Victoria Hospital. So that's how he, you know, he drew a map and he pinpointed something right in the middle of that, and that's where he decided to locate his office. So it was between all of these doctors, and it was easy for them to get to his office to meet with him, and it was, you know, centrally located for them. The other thing that he told me was that the National Australia Bank in Kent Town um, was about to go out of business. He must have known a manager there and he told them that he was building this accountancy practice and that he would push his customers or encourage them to use NAB Kent Town. That Kent Town branch of the NAB um, was no longer there, but when it was there, it thrived. It became the most profitable branch in Australia. He told me that. Um, he used to send all of the doctors there and they had a a really good relationship in terms of cross-referrals. And, and I mean, I've got that with bank managers now. Um, I haven't got to the level that John was at, obviously, but I know when that level of trust is there with a bank manager, you can the bank manager will give them a better hearing when he's interviewing them and deciding on whether he's going to lend them money if they've come as a referral from an accountant like John or myself. So understand that. Um, so that, that was... I found that... Um, absolutely fascinating. The other thing that he told me was he was actually telling me about the way he used to do interviews. And I'm going to throw this over to you in a second. But he said he was one of the first accountants 30 years ago to get a whiteboard. Now, everyone has whiteboards. But 
I've been thinking about that a bit. And the beauty of the whiteboard is when you stand up and you've got someone in a captive audience listening to you, you've, you're showing leadership, you're showing direction, you're usually, usually drawing up diagrams and visual components to plans or aspects to their financial future or whatever. Um, so, you know, that was quite revolutionary at the time. The whiteboard idea, I mean, it's it seems mundane now, but back then it was groundbreaking. And I think that it was a real sign of um, leadership and direction that John was impressing on his doctors as they were sitting and meeting with him. He also told me that the meetings, that initial meeting that he'd have would be two to three hours. Now, I struggle with half an hour appointments, 45 minutes. He was the opposite of that. He would sit down he would go through every aspect of their financial life with them. And I'm going to get more information from you, Peter, on this. But he said that uh, he would also want them to feel totally comfortable in his office. So when they came in, he would more or less make sure that they had a tea or a coffee or a glass of water. He would leave them in his office. I found this a bit bizarre. Go out to the lunchroom. He probably I don't know whether he actually made it, but he'd get someone to make it. And he'd leave them in his room so that they could look around and feel comfortable with the environment and know where everything was so that when he came back, I guess they were more relaxed and ready to um, go to the next level and, and not be so nervous in their responses and their interview with him. Um, he also told me that in his reception area, he had lists of all the doctor's companies up on the walls. So when they walked in, the doctors felt as though, oh, that's such and such. I know them. He works for them. I didn't realise that. You know, so there was this real feeling of, um, you know, I, I guess um, assimilation with their, their, their peers and their workmates, but also he probably had some heavy hitters there and thought, oh, wow, if he's looking after that guy and he's doing well, um, well, I'm, on, I'm in the right place if I want to end up being like that person. Anyway, let's go to you, Peter. Um, you were the CPA there. Now, the other day we were having a conversation and um, you'd only just started, you were telling me the story, you'd only just started working with John and he got sick um, and you had to step into his role. Can you give us a bit of a picture about that story, please? Yeah, sure. Uh, thanks, Kim. I started with John in 81. So Eastwood, uh, John actually started the firm in the 70s. Um, I started there in middle of July 1981. And back in those days, tax avoidance schemes were rife. They were so blatantly cheating it didn't matter and the tax department came down. The bottom of the harbour was the first big one that got a lot of publicity. With something like the bottom of the harbour, you could put in, say, $10,000 and they would find a way of lending you, if you were big enough, you know, two, $300,000, it would be what was called a non-recourse loan. So you effectively got a tax deduction for $200,000 if you're on a tax rate of 60 cents in the dollar, that meant it saved you 120,000. If you're worried about paying your provisional tax, which would probably be about another 130,000, so you could save yourself $250,000 in cash by simply putting up $10,000. Now, Bottom of the Harbour was the one that got the most publicity, but and doctors were very prone to this sort of thing. When I went to Eastwood Consultants, there were a number of clients who had been one way or another, involved in these type of schemes. And if you were known as someone who had been in a tax avoidance scheme, you suddenly 
were required to have your tax return lodged by the 31st of October. That meant that in accounting, an accounting office like ours, there was this absolute logjam because people don't get this stuff in the 1st of July. By the end of July, it starts trickling in. The tax department says, we want to see these returns. They were all major clients and they had to be done within a couple of months. Uh, so about probably the beginning of October, you know, we were really under pressure. I'd only been there for a couple of months. I was pretty new at the job. John had been working stupid hours before I started there because he'd had two guys who left and went and went off and started on their own. And he was try- had been trying to manage the whole thing. So I came in, he was trying to teach me about looking after the clients. He also had another business he was running called You Store It, which he still runs today. And in long and short of it, John got really sick. And so just over two weeks out from the end of the 31st of October, there were all these very large clients who had to have their tax returns done. And John couldn't even get out of bed. The first week, I think, when he finally came back to work, he told me he didn't even know anything about the first week. So I was stuck in there in the office with there were, um, two other bookkeepers and we just had to work crazy hours. We rang the tax department to try and get an extension, explain that John had been sick. They weren't even interested then. As far as they were concerned, these clients had been tax avoiders and if they didn't lodge their returns on time, there were going to be very heavy penalties. So we just worked you know, stupid hours from 7 o'clock in the morning till 9, 10 o'clock at night for two weeks and we got them all in on time. Unbelievable. Now, when, when you say um, he was working crazy hours, what, what sort of hours was he working? Oh, seven in the morning. He'd get in there at seven. Yeah, we'd be, and that, I think the second day I was there, I started at seven o'clock, and that was just our starting time. And uh, we would finish normal, normal would be lucky seven o'clock at night. But John quite often would then, from work, he would then go to you store it, which he was slowly building up. Then with the partner he had there, they would weld units together for this storage facility. And what, he would, hang, sorry. Got to interrupt you. He was on hands on with the welding. Yep. Yes. So he'd run the accounting practice with doctors. Yep. Race off to these um, factories that he'd bought, and and weld up metal to make like storage storage units facilities yep. to put inside these massive sheds that he's bought. Yeah, what's the sheds? It was he had a there's a huge building on um, Anzac Highway that he bought. Um, and yeah, they were these storage units. They were welding together. He'd often come into work and say, "Oh, look, I didn't finish till one or two o'clock last night." So he would had, you know. Did, did he have a tradesman on on side with him? Uh, yes, he had a tradesman as well. Yeah, Alan. I forget his other name, but yeah, Alan Byler was the guy I used to work with him. And they would work till the wee hours of the night. Yeah. Yes. He didn't do it every night, but he did it, you know, often enough. Well, and that was after, you know, a good 12 hours, sometime, and sometimes we, uh, back in those days, was, was like, this was before computers, so when we did billing, you had to manually do it. So you go through every client, they had a time card, or, you know, what time, and all the, the time had been recorded, hand recorded by the staff. So John and I would, when we'd finish with clients during the day, we would sit down, so that would be maybe 7 o'clock at night, we would sit down and then we'd spend the next two or three hours physically going through every client, seeing who could be billed, you know, what stage the work was at, did we need to get work finished. 
And I mean, 15 hour days weren't, and you didn't do it every day, but it was done. 12 hours was common, and 15 occasionally. Without mentioning numbers, were you getting paid award rates, above award? Like uh, I started on a pretty basic wage there. Um, I don't know what the award was. And I have to say that, you know, I mean, I enjoyed the job so much that the money was secondary. You just love the whole environment, yeah. the vibe of just working was hard. Unbelievable learning experience. These were consultants. That the, guy, the guy who actually originally started the concept was a fellow called Joe Bongiorno, the Bongiorno brothers in Melbourne. And they started this idea of an accounting firm which would specialise in offering services to high-income professionals. And we weren't just accountants. We would offer financial advice. We had uh, we would we did life insurance, superannuation, income protection. We were really hot on a number of client. Every client that came in was told that the most valuable asset they had was their income. It was worth more than their house, more than anything that they had, and we would show mathematically show them why it was that their income was worth millions of dollars. It would generate everything that they were going to do for the rest of their life. And if they, if their house burnt down and it wasn't insured, it didn't matter. They could replace it. If they lost their income, they couldn't. And a lot of these things which were basics back then, we were really frowned upon. The Australian Society of Accountants back then tried to ban John's membership because we were doing this. And now every second accounting firm's got a financial services division. But he was, the Bongiornos and John Eastwood were just light years ahead of the accounting profession. John had a real estate office at the same time. So, and everyone was getting into real estate in the, in the 80s. I mean, this is probably unheard of now. Real estate prices in Nord, published by the Real Estate Institute, were going up at the rate of 30-odd percent per year, average real estate price. We had clients, so, sorry, I'm going a bit quick here. I'll go back. When a client came in to do their tax... At the end of their tax return, every client, we would go through a budget of their income and expenditure and assets and liabilities and tell them what they could do with their surplus funds. A lot of doctors have a habit of spending 110% of what they earn, so we would look at getting a plan for them so they were putting something of that aside. We had clients buying real estate uh, all over the eastern suburbs, but obviously a lot in Nord because of what was happening back then. John had a real estate office which had a very substantial rent roll to help manage those properties. Who was the guy who ran the real estate office? John. Was it, but wasn't, was it Rob Younger? No, we had uh, Greg Ennis did Greg for Ennis. a while. Greg Ennis. Greg Ennis came in, yeah. yeah. I mean, John oversaw everything. He, he was hand, hands-on with everything. Didn't sell real estate, but he made sure the clients were looked after. And his... Work ethic was probably it's where I've got mine. I'm the same. Okay. Did, did he stop for lunch? No, we ate at the desk. Um, would you, would he get lunch brought in, or he'd bring a lunch oh, we'd from home? Walk, we'd walk across the road and buy it. That was probably the five or ten minutes off. Every now and again, we would we would actually go out. So we would go to Paul's Fish Cafe was a favourite place in town. We were never out for more than an hour. But that was a bit where we got out of the office, we got away from the phones, there was no mobile phones, and we could just have a chat, which might be about work, it might be about the football, um, red wine, that was a favourite subject. Would you drink alcohol at lunch? You could, you couldn't Maybe have, have a beer. You couldn't have red wine with fish, though. No, no, no lunch would just have a beer. Yeah, okay. Because we okay. were going back to work. But you talk about red wine while you're eating the fish. 
Now, when we had when we decided to have a glass of wine, the rule was that was it. We didn't go back. So maybe you know, sort of twice a year. There was a couple of guys in the co-op building society we used to go out with to lunch with once or twice a year. So when we went to lunch, often somewhere like the Cork and Cleaver was the place to go back then. So we went to lunch and didn't go back to work. Now, can you please just tell me about the the importance of doing the budget when they walked in the door? You've given me sort of mock-ups of the form that you used to use. It was pretty basic. Can you sort of describe that to me? Uh, with the budget, the first thing we did was look at their income expenses. It was about trying to teach them that they had to put some of their money aside to get somewhere. But this is no easy task. If they're spending 110%, what lines did you use? How did you drive home the importance of dropping their income expenditure, sorry, their expenditure back to like 60, 70% of what they're earning? To just, when you go through it, the budget, the income expenses, I'll go back another step. One of the things that we would do with the whiteboard, we'd draw a T on the whiteboard and we would say to the clients, right, there are two sides. On one side, there are the haves and the other side are the have-nots. And the have-nots spend 110% of their income. And most of them, well, with a lot of them, especially if we, you know, had sort of touched on what we're going to go through, we had a bit of an idea that they were probably going to be in the have-nots. And we would explain that the only way you're going to have something later in life in retirement, because superannuation wasn't like what it is now, where it's compulsory. Superannuation was something you did voluntarily, unless you're in, say, a government fund. So we were trying to explain to them, you have to have something aside to when you retire and back in those days the magical number for doctors and what their lifestyles were like was they needed two million dollars in income producing assets in something like superannuation or real estate or whatever so you said to them dr smith you need when you retire when you hit 65 two million dollars that's our target that's what we're going to aim for yep yes big number it was, but we also somehow it was, how it was achievable, you know, it, and, and it wasn't something that was, in, and the other thing we would emphasise to them, if you come to me when you're 65 and want to raise $2 million or when you're 55, you're going to make it pretty hard. Wait, but what would that number be today? Uh, for them in their lifestyle, it's certainly 500000 Sorry, but sorry. Five, sorry, five, certainly five million. Sorry. Five million dollars in super. Well, if you look at it, their lifestyle. You know, I'm trying to say now. If you said okay for them to, we've got a more generous superannuation system now too. Because mm. your superannuation system now, you know, if you're structured properly, you don't have to pay any tax. Yeah. So if your super fund earns two hundred thousand dollars a year, that's all yours. Back then, it wasn't. Okay. So that sort of cancels out the massive number that you need as the lump sum. It helped reduce it. But you know, just even, even today, I mean, I very occasionally do a bit of this stuff for people today and I tell them, look, the minimum you need is $2 million. Mm-hmm. If you've got $2 million in super fund and when you get to that age, you're not going to be rolling the dice on your investments. You want nice conservative investments and you've got to say, okay, if my fund can earn 5%, that's $100,000 a year. $100,000 a year is not a bad sort of income. If you want to have a holiday, you want to replace your car every three or four years, simple things like People don't, don't realise that it doesn't take much for something, ten or $20,000 to disappear. So $100,000 a year is a sort of minimum figure that I 
we you know still suggest people need to if you're if it's tax free, you should be aiming at. Okay, well, that's that's really refreshing. I think there's there's value there for everyone in hearing that. So what were the keys to saying, look, guys, stop spending, start saving? Well, two things. I mean, if you had really bad clients, and there were some, you had to identify whether it was the husband or wife because it could be either, often both. Mm -hmm. So you had to get the two of them in. They had to be both involved. If you didn't have them both involved, then you probably weren't going to solve the problem. You're wasting your time. So that would be number one. Then number two, you went through every single item of their expenditure. You start off with something simple like, you know, what are your mortgage repayments? That's just a fact of life. And then you start getting into what are the other discretionary type expenses, holidays, clothes, and go through all of it. You know, what are you paying for your health benefits? What are you paying for electricity? You know, can you do better with that? And so at the end of it, we would get to a bottom line. And invariably, what they would do is they would understate the areas where they're really blowing money. And so we'd come to an agreement where they would try and make that a budget. So and we're it, talking like holidays. Holidays. Oh, look, car repayments. Wine. School fees. Wine. Entertainment. Um, this, um, so so you a credit card, they can make it, do a fair bit of damage without even trying. Well, the, the the mindset is that you you're actually clocking up frequent flyer points every time you use your credit card. There weren't any frequent flyer points then. Okay, so you so you were giving them a budget and saying, okay, I, I know that you need to spend money on red wine and entertainment and all of that. Why don't yeah. we pick a number of something like three thousand dollars a month? Could you stick to that? Is that how the conversation would go? Yeah, pretty much. You know, well, the other see the thing about the the haves and have nots. If you go back a step, mm. is that the have nots? What they do is they say, "This is my income. These are my expenses. This is what I've got left to save." And invariably, that is zero no, or a number very close to it. For doctors, it's sometimes minus. <laughs> so what we would do is you would say, "Okay, for the haves, what they do is they say, this is my income." This is how much I need to save. This is what I've got left to live on. So you take it out first. Yeah. So so in answering your question about how do we get around this problem, we would say, okay, what do you need to put aside? And putting aside could be anything from physically putting the money aside to actually going out, buying an investment property, saying, look, we know that this investment property is going to cost you, out of your pocket, $1,000 a month. For saving. So we would, or the superannuation policy. Superannuation you couldn't put a lot of money into, but you put some money into this superannuation policy, you know, um, $2,000 a year. You know, it was it was starting point. If you get someone young enough at $2,000 a year, it goes a long way towards their retirement. So we would find ways of getting them involved or committing to something where they were forced to do it. And it was, it was amazing. And I was with uh, uh, these were consultants for nearly 10 years and the clients who went from not very much to having a reasonably substantial asset backing in that period just because of what inflation did for them, the way the prices of property were going up. You are putting these people on savings plans? Yeah. yeah. We, we would try... You know, if, you, if you give a voluntary savings plan, when there's one or other of the family or both of them are just love spending money, mm. 
if it's voluntary, they'll find ways of not doing it or not. So you have something that's the money's just taken. You've got to get buy-in from them. As, as, as much as we could. Yeah. Can you, sorry, I know that you weren't in the real estate office or the real estate part of the business, but can you describe what these investment properties looked like that you were putting these doctors into at that time? Or Like, were they new properties? Were they old, run-down? Norwood's got a lot of old they homes were in old, it. They were existing properties. Mm-hmm. We... Generally, because doctors are time poor, mm-hmm. we would generally aim for something that was in reasonable condition. Okay. So that if it and I did have a bit to do with the real estate office, okay. so I'd be I'd be over there regularly, getting information or whatever else. But the um, if if John sometimes would bid at auction for clients to buy properties, because clients get a little bit emotional or whatever at them. Um, we would. Uh, we had a number of tradesmen that we could rely on. So if we bought properties that we needed to do what I remember I bought a property at one stage at Trinity Gardens. And so I then just worked with the guys in the real estate office and said, okay, what do you think? Because we'd get the guys in the real estate office. What do we need to do to maximise the value of this property, to make it most appealing for tenants to rent? And he'd say, okay, you need to get the painter to this or the plumber to come in and do that or we need a carpenter to put some new shelving in. And we had guys that would, and they, through the real estate office, we had guys that would do all that. Can, can you just, I'm, I'm a little bit, I need more information. Um, were you chasing rental returns, tax deductions, because that's one school of thought with investment properties, or the other school of thought is capital gains? Now, I've made my mistakes by chasing rental returns, my first yeah, couple of properties. Capital gains were – these guys didn't need more income. Income was secondary. Okay, so it was capital gains. Long-term capital so gains. So you were speaking to the agents and saying, pick me a property for my doctor client who, which is going to go up in value and um, you know they'll get all the benefits of negative gearing along the way, but we're aiming for you – know, not massive, but we're aiming for substantial and consistent capital growth. Am I right? Yeah, but the clients often found the properties themselves. Okay. One, once you, and that was one of the things, once you sowed that seed in their mind, it's another way for them to spend money, by the way. For people that love spending money, it's just spending money a bigger chunk in a very short period of time. <laughs> but they would go out. They wouldn't know, they, quite often they didn't deal with us. I mean, there were, there were times when we didn't have a, a real estate salesman. We had, we always had someone managing the rent roll. So there were other um, real estate agents. Bernie Booth, we had a bit to do with. Um, so you know. just touched on something there. So you would manage their properties for them, and you were the rental property managers. Yes, each was real estate managed and, the, with them. And then and then you'd get a clip on that. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Okay, um, I'm going to change tack here for a moment because I think we've that's been really useful. Um, now. Ernie Kirsten, friend of mine who I interviewed on the show, um, people might remember he had the coal mine. His son did medicine and he said, Kim, you've got no idea. He said he checked his son's bag one night and all of his medical books at Adelaide University all were in binders with Eastwoods written all over them. Right, and that sort of blew my mind because, I mean, how many other accountants have that mindset? John embedded himself. I think he knew one of the lecturers and he told me he'd put free beer on after the last lecture on a Friday in one of the lecturer's offices and he reckons there was 110 kids and 108 came because there was – and I think he might have put on some food and stuff like that. Did you go to any of those sorts of – No, I didn't. Okay. Um, But like what I'm getting at is he stitched up that whole – 
Like he identified that his doctors were the clients. Then he realized the best place to get them was as graduates. And he knew, and he told me this, that he knew that five years after getting them as a graduate doctor, they would become private practice owners and their income would go to roughly, I can't remember the number exactly, but like $500,000 a year. I found that he targeted those doctors so hard at the university, worked alongside of the university, got all their books and covers and all their pads and pens. He used to get student loans for them, help them get cars. He told me one story where he'd worked out the multiple on buying the first home and because, like, because obviously trying to borrow money at that early point in their career is difficult, trying to get the deposit is the hardest part of it. He would go to one bank and take out a private loan for the deposit and this is all fully disclosed. It's not... It's not um, under the table or anything like that, and I'm not suggesting that for a moment. He would get the deposit as a personal loan from Bank A and then use that as a deposit with Bank B for the loan. So he's basically borrowing 100% but doing it between two banks and fully disclosing it, but a lot of people don't think like that. And that is one way that you can get someone into the property market and get leverage where they otherwise wouldn't be able, that they'd be locked out for four or five years if you weren't thinking outside the square. That's the sort of guy that John was. Yes, yeah, yeah. And John also, because because of the relationship we had with the National Bank, as you mentioned, Kentown Branch was about to close before Eastwick and Stockton started dealing with them. And when I was there, it was definitely the most profitable branch in South Australia. John personally had the authority to give a medical client, a loan or an overdraft of up to $25,000. No questions asked. No, just... If John approved it, it was done. The bank, you know, if you go to the bank, they've got their own forms they want to fill out for your assets and liabilities and income and expenses. Our form was accepted by the bank as their record. So, if I, you know, if I ever went into the bank with a client and they opened the file, the statement of position on the client was on Eastwick's consultant's format, not the bank's format. Ours was what was accepted at the bank. Oh, I find that amazing. Like, it would never happen today, but a lot of those components he's talking about happen but in a different way today. Like, I know with some doctors, I've used his model, and it does work. Like, you feed it into the the, the, um, the loan mortgage repayment assessment calculator, and if you've got a personal loan and someone's got a massive income, often that will serve as a deposit, and the numbers stack up, and it works. You know, so... I wouldn't be able to sign off on an overdraft these days with the bank, but uh, I'm sure that if the numbers stacked up on my client data form and I put it to the bank, they might redo it in their format and give them the, the person the loan. Um, did he have any quirky habits? John? Hmm. John was a very different person. I mean, apart from the fact that he could work incredible hours, it was pretty infectious the way he did. Um, Well, uh, the reason I'm saying that is because I I met with the doctor recently. Um, Lovely chap, but I didn't find this out from him, and that's the beauty of these sorts of things. found out from one of his co-workers that he has to sleep at lunchtime every day (laughs) in his office on the floor. Who? I mean, John? No, no, no. This this is the doctor that I'm referring to. But, um, you know, I I find that a bit quirky. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'd love to do it myself, but if one of my staff walked into my office and I was fast asleep on the floor... It'd be a little bit embarrassing, so yeah, I, yeah. I don't do it. But yeah. some people get away with that. Did he have any habits like that? No. He, he, 
I wouldn't say he was hyperactive, but he was pretty active. So is that a quirky habit? I don't no. Know. no. Did, did he? What sort of cars did he drive? Were they were they statements? Yes, he had okay. a Mercedes Sports, two door. Yep. Flash. Yes. In the car park out the back. Yeah. Yes. And people noticed it. Yeah, that's what staff car park, staff and client car park. So yes, they noticed it. Um, and was that like, um, you may not know the answer to that, but do you think it was on high purchase? Um, probably not. Okay. He was. He was. So not only was it a thriving business, he was. He was making good money. Yeah. When I joined him, um, I vaguely remember he was pretty stretched, and that's why he'd been working such stupid hours. Uh, when yeah, there was there was something happened when the two guys left, which obviously left him in a bit of a hole. But you know, John's way of getting out of that was to work. He never really forgot that. Like when I met with him, he mentioned those two people that left. He was very upset about it, um, and in fact, that led to like a damages discussion that I had with him. Like he was telling me all the ins and outs of. You know how if you know you have non-compete clauses and exclusivity with staff members in contracts, he was telling me a way that he designed, and I think it was as a fallout of those two people leaving, where you could put in a damages claim, a damages clause into the contract, so that if if they left and took a customer, they paid you two dollars for it, even though it was worth one dollar. I mean, it was bizarre that that would come up in a in a discussion and meeting with him, but um, I just thought that that was interesting, and now that you've raised it, that sort of ties in with that. Yeah. It was pretty common back in those days. Well, it still is today. If someone works in an accounting firm and they leave, invariably the clients that were attached to that person will follow them. Um, it, but it's an inherent problem with our profession, isn't it? Because if I train someone up, they come and work for me and they're working for me for five, ten years mm. and I teach them everything they know, I mean, you, you know, I, I put a lot of time and energy into, into making them who they are and I feed them all my customers and then all of a sudden, for one reason or another, they want a pay rise or and it's not available because we're not making enough money. And they say, well, I actually realised that if I go out on my own, I can make a hell of a lot more money. And by the way, I'm going to take all those customers with me. Do you, you know what I mean? It, mm, it's it, it's, it's an, an inherent one. problem. Um, I think the client decides who they want to go to, don't they? Exactly. And maybe he, you know, the lesson maybe there is that he probably should have kept an active, played an active role still in there. Um, in, in, in their work every year, but probably delegated too much to these competent staff members. And then when they actually up traps, there was no question the clients left with them. Yeah, it's, mm. it, it's been an issue for you know, time memorial accounting firms. What was his, what, 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 um, how did he dress every day? Always well dressed. You know, we wore suit to work. Tie? Tie, yeah. That was standard dress in those days. Now, one of my friends who used to work there said that um, was talking about marble floors in the office. Was it a pretty flash office? Flash office? Yeah. Uh, yeah, that was the new one. See, the office that I started in, that John, where I believe he started, was on, on the bottom of the parade. So it was a house which he bought. Ah. And what number? 34. Okay. 34 the parade. So he bought that, and that's where. We operated from, and when I was there, the, the guy who was uh, managing rent roll for the real estate office—that's we just had—he was in there as well. Then John bought the house next door, number thirty-six. So we were thirty-four to thirty-six, the parade Norwood. 
Um, and we grew, when I started, there was John and I who were seeing clients and we had uh, two bookkeepers, a receptionist, and John had a, a what we call a PA today. Um, that staff slowly grew there. We in, oh, did we have a... I think we had a, a, a financial service, well, you call them financial services now. We had a guy who was did life insurance and superannuation. Uh, we you know, added staff, uh, accounting staff. John bought next door and then the financial services side ran real estate operate out of next door. And then in about 87, I think it was 87, 88, we were taken over by Bongiorno's, Bongiorno Group. They took us over, and Bongiorno and Group themselves had been uh, taken over by National Mutual. So we were under their umbrella for a period. Um, when things went pear-shaped with National Mutual, uh, uh, John bought the business back, um, and which ultimately, as you say, was bought out by one of the banks. Yeah. Why did you leave? Um, oh, it was probably a difference of opinion mm. between John and I. He was um, quite, uh, like, um, when I met him, I, I felt like he was quite, um, oh, opinionated is not the right word, but, you know, um, focused, um, wouldn't be swayed on a decision if he made it. Yeah. Is that how you see it? Yes. A bit stubborn. Yeah, yeah, John had an opinion. Well, most people, most of us do. He had an opinion and he was generally right. Mm, mm. And so that, over that, you decided that it's time for you to move on? Well, yeah, we had a yeah, difference of opinions. How many all. How many years were you there? Oh, pretty close to 10. Wow, it's a long haul. So you were there during the, the, the stock market crash? Yes. Was there any fallout in that? Like, what I mean is, um, how did that impact the firm? No, didn't impact on the firm at all. That's fantastic. John was very much real estate was his focus. You know, one of the questions that would come up with clients because the eighties was a pretty crazy period. You know, there was uh, sort of the early to mid eighties, you know, up to sort of eighty seven and even a bit beyond. You could put your money into anything and it would go up. It didn't matter mm. what it was, and it would go up. A lot of things just went up at silly rates. Mm. John was very focused on real estate. Clients would come in and say, look, should I have my money in the share market because the share market's doing this or should I have my money in real estate? Where's the place to go? My answer to that was always, you know, where are you comfortable investing your money? Mm. Markets, they all go up and down. So after 87, 87 was probably the biggest share market crash since... Um, depression. Depression. And then following that, you know, the late 80s, we had the real estate crash. So, you know, it was... He, I mean, amazingly, he sailed along through that really unscathed. Yes. Fair to say. He'd, that's that's he'd, amazing. He'd built up some very substantial assets by then. Mm. Okay. So, yeah. Now, thanks. That's enough on Eastwood. Thanks ever so much. Now, let's talk about your business. You Let me just give people a bit of a background. Um, you're now no longer accounting so much. You're now... Um, saving people money on electricity, which involves putting predominantly solar panels on commercial properties um, around Adelaide and Darwin. Um, is that, and how does that work? So tell us a little bit about what you're doing these days. 
Yeah, I came to this job almost by accident. A friend of mine was working in a um, solar firm and he was trying to develop their business presentations and just couldn't get his head around it. So I went in to help do that for him. In the end, he was he was a school teacher, but he was terrible at numbers. So he gave it up and I ended up doing it. Um, I Ultimately, I've started my own uh, firm. I focus more on trying to save people costs. So the, And that's the, a bit of a, the accountant in you. <clears throat> I look at it from the point of view of saying, okay, what's happening with all of your energy? Because it's not, solar isn't just the only answer. And through a government program, I, uh, energy productivity program from the state government I was involved with last year, we've developed a system whereby with clients we go and we have a look at what they're doing. For the larger users of energy and uh, commercial businesses, I often encourage them to have an energy audit done. The energy will audit will look at all aspects of their use. So, sorry, you mentioned this to me yesterday. I didn't quite understand. Can you explain what an energy audit is on the business? What, how does it work? What is it? What does it cost? And what does it <clears throat> what does it tell you? Well, energy audits can vary massively. You know, you can probably have one done for three thousand, and you can have one done for twenty thousand. Mm. It's a matter of how complex do you want or need to go? Most of what we're doing now is probably in. We're not trying to satisfy a government program. That's that certainly blows costs out. So we're looking at basically how do we go through where you're using all your power, where you're spending all your money. Somewhere around three or five thousand dollars in South Australia. There's a grant you can get which will cover half of that. And we look at everything from a thing called power factor, that's your efficiency of use of power, LED lighting, depending if, you know, if you've got a business that uses a lot of air conditioning or refrigeration, then there is a thing called thermal storage we can do, batteries, solar. And then different businesses have other aspects of, of how or why they're using power, how we can regulate what they're doing. Can we run things after hours? Are we better off concentrating what you're doing in the middle of the day when the solar system is actually going at its hardest? And there's information you can get on your consumption from uh, SA Power Networks, which tell us a lot of that. There's a, a metering, a thing called e-gauge, which we sometimes put on to measure what's happening at different times of the day. For industries like uh, wine industry, we have, there's a big focus on what are you doing during vintage, how can we improve what you're doing vintage? So there's, there's, there's a lot that goes into it, but because I've done a lot of them now, I've done a lot of wineries, I've done a lot of hotels which have you know big refrigeration expenses, then you know what you're looking for. Mm. I've got a, an energy auditor. I'm not qualified to do it, but we've got a guy who I met through this energy productivity program who I think stands out a bit in terms of what he does. He gets to it pretty quickly. He's efficient. And of the energy audits that I saw, I did a dozen myself. I looked at, a, I probably looked at over 20 of them. And he was the best of the auditors that I saw mm-hmm. and not that expensive. How do people get in touch with you? Best way is to ring me. I, I, I tell clients when they come to me, I, this is again something I learned from John, people want to know they can talk to you. Mm. You know, at work at Eastwood Consultants, we had direct line number. So the clients who we thought, you know, might need to get to us urgently or who work crazy hours, they had our direct phone number. For me, I don't have a landline. Okay. There's no gatekeeper to get past. You ring me on my mobile. So if 
and I see this time and time again, some of these big businesses that draw massive amounts of um, electricity, there's nothing for them to spend $100,000, $150,000 a year on electricity, which is unheard of 10 years ago. But it's happening more and more nowadays. Can we give out your mobile number if people yeah, want to get in touch sure. with you? What is I've it? got clients spending half a million. <laughs> My mobile number is 0438 804 People ring me seven days a week. That's fine. Fantastic. Thank you, Peter O'Leary. It's been a pleasure interviewing you today. Thanks for all your insight into John Eastwood and the Eastwood Consulting Group. Um, I've really got a lot out of it and I've really enjoyed it. Thank you. All right. Thanks, Kim.